This is Bloomberg Business Week. I'm Carol Masser. And I'm Jason Kelly. We're right here every day bringing you the latest news from the worlds of business and finance. Plus technology, politics, economics, all harnessing the power of Business Week reporters and editors. And of course, Carol, that's part of a team of 2,700 journalists and analysts in more than 120 countries. And Jason, you can download Bloomberg Business Week on iTunes, SoundCloud, or Bloomberg.com. You can also listen to our radio show at 2 p.m. Eastern on Bloomberg Radio every weekday. Or watch us on YouTube by searching Bloomberg Global News. This is the guy I've been wanting to talk to to try and make sense of everything that's going on a little south of us down in the nation's capital. He is our Washington Bureau Chief and Executive Editor there in the nation's capital, Craig Gordon from Bloomberg, joining us on the phone from Maryland. First, Craig, how are you? Oh, I'm doing fine. I'm out here in Bethesda, Maryland, in the leafy suburbs, so I'm plenty uh, plenty removed from the action downtown, which would be about three or four blocks from where our office is, but right. a lot of us have been there in about 10 weeks, so uh, we're, feeling, we're feeling okay out here. And tell me what is going on. I mean, you've got a team reporting on this all the time. I mean, I saw some pretty arresting images from uh, Jen Epstein, who I know, you know, works very closely with you on our White House beat and, and others who have been documenting this. I mean, what do we need to know maybe that we haven't seen and, and the important context of what's going on with the president and the response right now in Washington? Yeah, that's a good question. I mean, I think the thing that is important to remember right now is that Trump actually does have a lot of authority to do the thing that he said that he wants to do, which is potentially send U.S. troops into U.S. cities to try to sort of quell the unrest. Um, You know, there's laws that date back to 1807 that allow him to do this. Usually they're only invoked when the local officials, the governor, the mayor, Um, you know, sort of calls the White House and says, um, you know, kind of send in the troops. Um, It happened during the Rodney King riots in Los Angeles when George H.W. Bush did it. Um, There's some other instances scattered through history, but in most cases it's local officials making the request. The law does, you know, does allow Trump to do it if he sees there's a need to do it or feels there's a need to do it and essentially overrule the local um, the local officials. So it's something we're watching very closely. Now, Pentagon officials today held a briefing and told us, you know, they don't think that uh, they will need to invoke this, you know, literally active military response that National Guard in some of these states and cities can probably handle um, whatever the protesters can throw at them. But it, it's very much a live question. And I think based on the reaction, um, Trump's reaction last night, he's kind of itching to do it. So we're, we're on pretty high alert for any kind of mobilization like that. So, Craig, what do you make of what happened last night? So the president makes some comments and then he does this walk from what I understand, an unannounced walk right across the street from the White House through Lafayette Square um, to visit St. John's Episcopal Church. And then he holds up a Bible. So I don't know. What have you heard about that? And what was the president thinking? Well, what our reporter, Jennifer Jacobs, who was actually on the scene, was in the press, you know, the press pool, essentially, when um, Trump made that walk was that you know, people may remember uh, the New York Times, Bloomberg, and others reported that uh, they had moved Trump into the sort of underground safety bunker at the White House on Friday night. Um, George W. Bush went there on 9-11. You know, it, it, it does get you to Cheney, if you, anyone saw that movie. Mm-hmm. It was kind of hustled there pretty forcefully uh, on 9-11. So, you know, it's used to keep the, the leaders of the nation safe. Um, I don't think that was really an image that uh, Donald Trump wanted kind of hanging out there, that he was, uh, as his own son, Put it in a tweet, you know, sort of cowering in the basement while the protests were raging outside, um, outside of the White House. They seemed 
uh, Trump himself seemed kind of eager to erase that image. And <clears throat> what Jennifer reported was that in a meeting with the military leaders who were at the White House to discuss some of the the response, he raised the possibility of, of walking over to St. John's Episcopal Church. And again, anyone who's visited the, the White House knows there's sort of a park right across the street, um, Lafayette Square. And then across from that is this church. I've been there many times on pool duty covering presidents through the years. It's, uh, it's a frequent Sunday stop. Um, for presidents, not so much Trump, but it is, it's sort of right there. It's in walking distance of the White House. He sort of made the decision he wanted to give it a try. And when the president says that, the, the team sort of scrambles to try to, to try to make it happen. We're trying to sort out today exactly who gave the order or how it came down that the protesters were sort of cleared out from the front of the White House to, so that the president could make that walk, which is sort of essentially across Pennsylvania Avenue, across this rather small park, and then right to the following corner. Um, there's some reporting right now that Attorney General Bill Barr, who people may have seen on TV, went over to the to kind of view the site um, before we knew Trump was going to make the walk, was the one who actually gave the order to kind of clear the park. That's a little bit in dispute right now. We're trying to get to the bottom of it um, in talking to Justice Department officials. But clearly an order was given because, again, anyone who saw the, the video and, and Jennifer Jacobs was there for us, you know, those um, – those military police cleared that spot out pretty pretty aggressively, um, some tear gas, some riot shields, um, uh, et cetera, on what at that point up till then had been a fairly peaceful protest. So, look, the imagery, if you're a fan of Donald Trump, the imagery was probably pretty dramatic. Um, he's sort of striding through this kind of, um, you know, troubled area where this protest had just happened, goes to the church, holds up a Bible. Um, obviously, he's taking kind of withering fire on this from Democrats who say, um, you know, he essentially cleared out a protest simply for a photo op. The leaders, religious leaders, the Catholic Archbishop in Washington, the uh, Episcopalian bishop who kind of essentially oversees that church, you know, said it was sort of horrific that you would stage a photo op at a religious site with the, with the Bible itself. So obviously very split opinions on that. I think Donald Trump honestly thinks he had a pretty good day yesterday. Right. All right. So, Craig, we're going to continue our conversation in a minute. But before we go, just... 30 seconds or so, what does the president do today? What's his state of mind today from what you can tell? Well, I mean, I, th I think you could say he kind of leaned into it a little bit. He did two things, uh, you know, that you might say would be designed to appeal to religious voters. He voted. There was a shrine to um, uh, Pope John Paul II now. Satan, John Paul II, mm -hmm. out in northeast Washington. He visited there. He signed an executive order on international religious freedom. So if anyone missed the, um, the subtlety of his, uh, of his actions last night, he reinforced it today with a pretty um, direct appeal to religious voters who were a big part of his 2016 coalition. Now, we've been talking about uh, what's going on, of course, across the country and President Trump and his team's response to it. Vice President Joe Bi Biden, of course, also out there giving some remarks on the civil unrest facing communities across the, uh, the country. He also weighed in on the president. Listen up. The President of the United States must be part of the solution, not the problem. But this president today is part of the problem and accelerates it. Let's bring back Craig Gordon, Washington Bureau Chief of Bloomberg News. Craig, Joe Biden, uh, you know, obviously campaigning in a very different way because of the virus. Um, I'm curious about how he addresses the president and his reaction, you know, what it might do for him, what it might do for the country. Yeah, I mean, Biden has been, as people know, kind of in his uh, home in Wilmington, Delaware, uh, you know, kind of laying low because of the coronavirus, made his first venture out yesterday and now the speech today. I mean, I, I mean, 
you know, Joe Biden has to give a speech like this. It's kind of the tone you might expect, critical of Trump, kind of more, you know, sadness than anger, you might say, um, and, and kind of calling people to their to their sort of better angels. Obviously, you know, Joe Biden's a very familiar figure to a lot of Americans. Certainly people know he was vice president to Barack Obama twice. But, you know, I think Joe Biden um, prospers in this campaign just by looking like a kind of a steady, sensible alternative to Donald Trump. But Ultimately, voters are going to decide on Donald Trump. It's really this whole election's referendum on Donald Trump. It was, we thought, going to be a referendum on his coronavirus handling. I think the marks on that are, are well in. There's a new Monmouth poll out today showing 74% of people uh, in the U.S. say the, the country's on the wrong track. That is that is a dangerous number for Donald Trump. Pollsters always look at right track, wrong track. It's just a very simple way for people to kind of express frustration or fear about the direction the country's going at. With three quarters of the country saying wrong track, that's extremely bad news for Trump. 42% approval rating, which is very, very low. So Biden kind of can, you know, he, he can do well by just sort of showing up looking steady, looking sensible. People know well um, he served Barack Obama, know well he has ties into the black community. A lot of support among African-American voters. That's why he became the nominee. So I think he he just, like, don't make any mistakes while Trump is over here, um, you know, throwing, throwing gasoline on the fire. And I think that that is all very helpful to Biden. The, 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 bigger, the, the bigger, you know, way Biden can win this thing is by Trump's overreach and people thinking, He's gone into a kind of a dangerous place and taking the country, as we say, down the wrong track. That's all good news for Joe Biden, some presidential hopes. Right. And the whole notion, uh, as we all know, historically, of uh, you know, are you better off four years ago? Are you better off today than you were four years ago? I do want to ask you, Craig, before we let you go, you know, the, this relationship that the president and the administration is – developing with the nation's governors and, and mayors who certainly were at the fore of the coronavirus response and now are at the fore of the response to this. We talked at the top of the conversation about, you know, the president's willingness, uh, more than willingness maybe to, to send in uh, the National Guard. But what does it tell us about sort of the, the more national political scene as we do see governors and mayors, and I'm thinking about Mayor Bottoms in Atlanta and other sort of governors and, and mayors coming to the fore. How does that change the political calculus, maybe even when it comes to the, the veep stakes, as they say? Excuse me. Yeah. I, I mean, um, uh, the uh, Mayor Bottoms down there in Atlanta is certainly making a case <clears throat> for herself um, to be to get a hard look from Joe Biden, who we know um, has said he will choose a woman for his vice presidential running mate. Um, he's been encouraged by some of his prominent African-American supporters to pick an African-American woman. He's certainly got several to choose from in Kamala Harris, um, Stacey Abrams, also from Georgia, a few people like that. I, I think what's interesting is w what we're going to learn here is how far Trump can push the Republican governors, while we have been on this phone call, the Texas governor, um, Abbott, just came out and said, you know, we don't need the U.S. military down here. As he put it, Texans can take care of Texans. So while Abbott was a person who was very eager to kind of push the reopening on the virus front and really kind of walk in lockstep with Trump on the idea that we need to get the economy back open, you know, and, and balance economic needs versus the, the, the danger from the virus, on this question, he's just drawing a hard line and saying, no, I'm not going to go there. I'm not going to let U.S. troops march through the streets of Austin and Houston and all the places, Dallas and Texas. So I think, I think where Trump is right now is that 
you know, there has been very little reaction from Republicans. Um, right. You know, almost none have criticized his actions last night. Ben Sass from Nebraska is kind of a frequent Trump critic. No surprise there. But when you start to have the governors, who are, again, right on the front line of both the virus and the protests starting to push back, again, that, that suggests um, even they think Trump might be overreaching a little bit here, and, and that's pretty hardcore Republicans. Now what do those voters in the middle think? They may be thinking the same thing. All right. Craig Gordon, always Thank a treat to so catch up much. with you. Thank you so much. Uh, just love your context and your perspective. Craig Gordon is our executive editor and Washington bureau chief for Bloomberg, joining us on the phone from Maryland. You are listening to Bloomberg Business Week. Well, we can't lose sight of one of the other really big stories going on in the world, and that is another form of protest and another confrontation that's happening, and that is in Hong Kong and with Beijing and everything that's going on and the repercussions that it's having across the world. It's the subject of a story in Bloomberg Business Week this week. Joel Weber, the editor of the magazine, joins us from Brooklyn. Mark Champion wrote the story. Joel, help us understand the backdrop here. So uh, last week, a pretty significant event happened, which was um, really kind of looks like China moved on Hong Kong in a way, which has been obviously brewing for a while, um, for years, in fact. Um, But it has really come to a head and accelerated during the pandemic with this law that that China has passed. Um, And the... A lot of uh, China watchers and Hong Kong watchers are really fearing for the worst. You know, it's really fascinating, you know, reading through this story, Joel, because, you know, the more I read about it, I'm like, wow, the similarities. And of course, it's not apples to apples, but this whole idea of just, you know, moving more aggressively into an area. Now, you know, mind you, Hong Kong is under, you know, the sovereignty, if you will, of China to begin with. But it is interesting how China and President Xi in particular are, you know, seemingly disinterested in what the rest of the world has to has to say about their increasingly aggressive moves. That's right. And and what Mark actually writes in this story is that um, there's a, a similarity um, to what's happening with Hong Kong and G's, uh, you know, sudden aggression, aggression there or, or really just the aggression there. Um, and, and what actually we saw from Putin in 2014 um, regarding Crimea, which also was sort of this this chess move at um, somewhat of an opportune moment for for him. And, you know, the takeaways for both of these is just that, you know, while the world is dealing with other things and looking away, there are moves that are made that you cannot unwind. And that's sort of what we're seeing here in Hong Kong, which, you know, you guys mentioned, you know, there's this de facto system of government there where it's sort of two systems, one country. And that's supposed to last until 2047. And what we're seeing is that it might not last through the end of the year, really. Um, so, Mark, I just wanted to bring you in. You know, you, you, I think, were the one who sort of said, you know, this is starting to look like a, a Crimea moment. And, and how, how has that sort of manifested itself um, from your perspective? Uh, yes. I mean, the, the key thing is, I think, uh, if you think of this in terms of, you know, why did the Chinese do what they did? Um, and what does it say about how they now view their foreign policy choices and the West? And then, you know, alternatively, if you also think about, well, what does it say about, uh, you know, how the West can respond and what, you know, what what can actually be done? 
Um, and so if you think of it in those two ways, um, there, there is a lot uh, to be found in common. Uh, so, you know, for the, the, from the first point of view, from the, the Chinese and you know, what they are doing, um, this is a moment a, a little like, you know, Putin in 2014, where he took this decision knowing that it would, for the foreseeable future, destroy his relationship with the U.S., with the West. But he had come to a point where he decided there was, you know, that was what he wanted to do. It was actually valuable to him uh, to work on anti-Americanism. He'd also given up on trying to work with the U.S. Um, and really, we're at that sort of point with Xi now, you know, after a couple of years of trade war. Um, and, uh, you know, now you've, you've had the stuff with the uh, coronavirus and Trump describing it as a, as a Chinese virus and so on. And the Chinese have really just decided there's not, not, not much to lose uh, by doing stuff that uh, the U.S. And, and the rest of the West will really uh, uh, be very upset about. Um, and then secondarily, they also understand, as did Putin, that there isn't much that the U.S. or Europe can, can do uh, to actually stop what, you know, the policy goals that they have. And these are quite historic goals, taking Crimea for Russia. I mean, in the Hong Kong case, of course, Hong Kong already belongs to China. Everybody acknowledges that. But, but the, to actually, you know, impose uh, control on an area that was, you know, becoming quite embarrassing for Xi, he wasn't able to impose authority order and so on and uh, so you know in those two ways i think they are it is a, a sort of very useful anatomy mm -hmm. and mark how does this how do how do you think this will play out for hong kong specifically and then also for those other places in sort of chinese um uh gaze like you know i'm thinking of taiwan for instance yes well i mean the answer for hong kong is is frankly not terribly well uh, so if, if you are a uh, Hong Kong pro-democracy protester, um, you've been part of this movement, which has been quite, uh, you know, formidable over the last year, um, then you, it, it's the implications of all this, A, that China no longer cares to hesitate because it doesn't worry so much about what it's going to, uh, what the rest of the world is going to think or what it may lose economically. And secondly, uh, that the U.S., uh, and, and in particular, and the rest of the West in, in general, um, will be unable to do anything really for you. Uh, that these two things um, uh, don't spell anything very good for you if you're in Hong Kong. Um, and you have to really, uh, you know, deal directly in the end uh, with uh, Xi and the, the, the party in, uh, in Beijing, uh, and, you know, find a new way, try and persuade them. I suppose that, you know, that this new law uh, won't be so uh, swinging that it will uh, destroy the, the independent judiciary and so on that uh, uh, Hong Kong's financial center and prosperity is based. Um, so for, for Hong Kong, you know, there's, it's a complicated future right. um, and not, not a very, uh, you know, promising one. Uh, and then for Taiwan, it's a little different. I mean, what the effect of uh, uh, the destruction, really, of the idea of a, a, a two, uh, two system uh, country, and you know, one country, two systems, um, the, the effect of what everything that has been watched over the last year from Taiwan, uh, they watched very closely what was happening in Hong Kong, it's already been to really change the politics in Taiwan. Uh, you, you had a, a pro independent president. 
who was really trailing in the polls quite badly uh, last year before these protests really got going and, and the res- police response got going. Um, and then in January, she, uh, she won re-election. And uh, it's really changed the way that the Taiwanese think about the possibility of, you know, uh, becoming part of that uh, policy of, of, right. of one country, two systems. I have to um, say, so, yeah. it's, it's, mm. it's very provocative and it does make me, Mark, wonder, you know, ultimately what's next in terms of this relationship between China and the United States. I mean, there's a line in there about China now being basically, you know, America's arch enemy, which is not essentially where I think if you go back a few years where we all thought it was ultimately going. Uh, It's a must read. Mark Champion, thank you so much. Bloomberg News Senior Reporter for International Affairs, uh, joining us on the phone in London, along with our Bloomberg Business Week editor, Joel Weber, on the phone in Brooklyn. This is Bloomberg Business Week with Carol Masser and Jason Kelly on Bloomberg Radio. It's time again for our Bloomberg Business Week Small Business Survival Guide check-in. For that, we have Demetra Kessanides, editor of Bloomberg, on the phone from New Jersey. And so, Demetra, set this up for us because you have very kindly delivered us uh, someone to talk about exactly what's going on in this very uncertain time, already an uncertain time for small businesses, and it's only getting harder. Help us understand what's going on. Yeah, Jason, thank you. I mean, it is really, um, you know, gearing up for reopening, but the past week has been a very, very, very tough week, one of the toughest weeks in the United States, um, uh, following the killing of George Floyd, protests, peaceful protests then interrupted by people coming in, uh, you know, and looting and really creating much more mayhem. And so this affects small businesses um, really at their core, businesses and communities that are really integral to those communities. And so we have been spanning out talking to business owners across the country. And one of the first people that my colleague, Nick Leiber, who's a contributor to Business Week, spoke to is Rashad West, who owns a restaurant in Minneapolis. Um, He runs a restaurant across the street from the spot where George Floyd was killed. Um, And we talked to Rashad about what it means to be running, you know, how do you move forward from this right now? And um, how do you navigate this point in time? So Rashad, come on in um, and welcome to Bloomberg Radio. You do join us on the phone in Minneapolis. And, um, you know, first of all, you know, we're so sorry for what your neighborhood is going through at this point. Um, Tell us a little bit about what you're seeing and, and what it's meant for you and your community. Um, well, thanks for having me. Um, right now, we have very peaceful um, protests. The memorial is actually on the intersection right across from uh, where my restaurant is. Uh, so, you know, this area is really protected. Um, the neighborhood is making sure nothing uh, violent, dangerous is happening. Um, so every day, you know, we're, we're coming in. People are, are grilling, passing food, passing food and water out. Um, people are bringing their kids. Uh, and it's like really a healing space. So. Um, right now, the community is just coming together and showing showing um, solidarity for the black community, especially. And so, Rashad, when you sort of put all of this together, you know, obviously that the comeback was in part uh, owing to a shutdown of the entire economy. How do these things, these, you know, two very traumatic events in, in different ways, how do they affect your your ability to really continue your business going forward? Um, I just think as a, as a 
business owner, small business owner, you're always trying to figure out a way to uh, to navigate day by day. So right now it's just really pushing us to, to figure out how, one, we can support our community first um, because, you know, that's, that's where we are and they're the ones that allowed us in the neighborhood to, to open a business. So figure out how to support our community. And then, um, you know, just after this, after we start to find some balance, um, how we can provide again and, and continue to, to do business. So uh, continuously adjusting as, as, as we all do and, and making making sure that people know we're here for them. That's, that's really number one right now. We haven't really thought about much else. Demetra, come on back in because um, you've been, you know, d- you know, managing the small business uh, survival guide and the coverage, and it certainly has gone from, you know, so much focused on the virus to obviously it's so much more than that now. Yeah, I mean, I think um, Rashad shared with me earlier and others that we're talking to that in a way, um, you know, that that now the virus, very important. It's important, of course, to still uh, be wary of that. But that has become a secondary concern in some ways because this is fundamentally so much more challenging. But um, I think, as he also said, it's, it's for, for many, take it a day at a time. Um, take the steps you can first to ensure that your community is okay because without your community being okay, you know, what, what's the point if your business is going to be okay in the midst of a community that is torn apart, that is, you know, really sort of mourning um, or just trying to rebuild. So it is especially challenging right now. We've talked about so many things over the last few weeks having to do with, you know, funding and money and loans. And and this doesn't even come close to that level. But I think if there's a strong community to build on, as there are resources, your chambers of commerce and all, you know, you'll find the support you need. And especially leaders like business leaders like Rashad who see themselves as community leaders, too, not just a business owner. Rashad, just got about 50 seconds left here. Are you getting the support that you need, financial and other? Um, absolutely. Community has um, has rallied around um, everybody that lives in the area. Um, financially, you know, we're, we uh, will be okay. Um, and then they uh, did set up a, a GoFundMe just, just because, you know, operations have completely stopped. So um, it was nice of them to do that, a friend to do that for our business. And, you know, we're going to make it through, um, but we just got to make sure everybody is healed, you know. Right. Well, uh, our hearts are with you. Uh, good luck with everything. Uh, and we know it's an incredibly difficult time, but we also know that, you know, and we know this from Demetra's work and, and our own, that small businesses really are the backbone of communities, the backbone of this country in many ways from an employment perspective, but also as gathering places at, at times of, uh, of great need where we all sort of need to lean on each other. Rashad West, uh, he is the owner of Dragon Walk. It is in the Bryant neighborhood of Minneapolis. Our thanks to him as well as to Demetra Kessinides uh, looking after the Small Business Survival Guide, a uh, critical, critical project at Bloomberg Business Week, Carol. Yeah, and truly in the thick of it uh, in terms of what we've been dealing with the virus over the last few months and then, of course, uh, with the death of George Floyd. I'm driving in my car I turn on the radio How about you let me drive? Oh, no, 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 no. Who's gonna drive you home? Honey, please, I'll do the driving. Drive home. Excuse me, I want to drive. Just drive, baby. It's the question that drives us. Drive. 
This is the drive to the close. That funky music will drive us till the dawn. On Bloomberg Radio. It is time for the drive to the close. Back with us is Kevin Barry. He's chief investment officer at the independent registered advisor, investment advisor, Cap Trust. He joins us uh, on the phone from Raleigh, North Carolina. So, Kevin, nice to have you back with us. Um, tell us about life in Raleigh. Um, how are you guys doing? Well, you know, I came from New York City, in which case I would have been in an apartment for the last 90 days. I'm in a much better mood down here. And I know Jason's from Atlanta. One of the interesting things about here in Raleigh is um, it's actually affordable. You can actually be a hipster, buy a warehouse and convert it into a bar or something. (laughs) So, you know, you can afford more than the hat, right? A lot of folks, it's so expensive. But here you can actually, there's so much happening. So many young people going to school here staying in the area, working at biotech companies. It's a very vibrant area, and I'm delighted to be here. Yeah, it's a great town, uh, you know, and you've got the whole, you know, Research Triangle Park thing going on. You've got, as you say, some great universities, and people love living there. One of my closest friends uh, moved from New York back home there. She's a Wake Forest grad and uh, has a great house in Raleigh and just raves about uh, life down there. I, I do wonder, you know, being a, a step removed from, from New York City, and, you know, some of the especially the, the virus hotspots and, and we can talk about some of the other things that are clearly going on in the world. You know, I do wonder if your lens is a little bit different for how you think about not just investing, but but the economy. Well, we, yeah, we do see obviously we're not as, you know, people are much more socially distant naturally here. Right. Sure. They're, because they're they're not taking subways to work, et cetera. So. On the other hand, my niece, for example, is at Duke University. She's working on, on a COVID cure right now. So being close to, the, close to the biotech means that we're kind of very close to what's happening in that standpoint. So you know, the economy, it's interesting to see kind of outside of the city during this whole period of time, even when the quarantines are on, you can see construction work going on here, repaving, you know, sort of outdoor work was still happening here. So that has been pretty interesting. Um, yeah. You know, Kevin, one of the things that we've been talking to, we're going to talk a little bit later on, is with everything that's going on in the world, how ESG, I feel like all of a sudden everybody's coming out and saying, you know, check out our ESG platform. You know, if you want companies that um, stress equality, diversity, fairness, um, and the like, you know, then, you know, you're going to want to invest with us kind of kind of thinking. And um I do think it is important that companies increasingly move forward on these types of initiatives because that can certainly money, – money, money talks, right, and brings about changes in society. And I do wonder how, if at all, that is some of what you're hearing from some of your investors at CapTrust. That's a great question. We've actually been running that kind of money for over 25 years. You know, and a long time ago it was mostly what you're not going to buy. I don't like this. We don't like that, right? right? And now we're incorporating um, – many more positive aspects into it. But you know what's really interesting? Now, more than half of our employees are millennials. And for a firm to grow, we've been a, a rapidly growing firm, for a firm to grow, you have to attract talent. And you're getting grilled by the talent on your internal ESG policies even before you design products for clients. I think that's really interesting. So when you look around the, the world and you sort of rank the, the worries, uh, Kevin, you know, we, we've obviously talked a lot about the, the civil unrest over the past couple of days. Yes. We've been talking for weeks and now months about the virus. But, you know, you think about what's going on between Beijing and, and Hong Kong and the U.S.-China 
trade tensions and political and, and economic tensions. How do you sort of rate those in terms of what could be the most disruptive for an investor? Sure. So I think the, the China is very interesting right now. And, and you guys have probably done stories on it. There's a dollar shortage in Hong Kong. You know, people who are living there trying to switch their Hong Kong dollar for U.S. dollar. And that's a sign. We see that in gold, right? And we see it in the continued strength of the dollar. Overall, I think it's an ex- what we've had the last three months is an extraordinary event. I've seen a lot of recessions and a lot of downdrafts, nothing like this. Actually, the shock does remind me of 9-11 a little bit and back mm-hmm. to the 73, 74 shock. But um, it's a, this is an extraordinary time. And I think it's also so meaningful that it's occurred during an election year, coming up to an election year, because we have uh, seen bipartisan support for tremendous spending on the fiscal side and tremendous support on the monetary policy side. I'm not sure we would have gotten that much some more support um, if if it wasn't an election year, right? Really? So I Interesting. Think that, yes. Yeah, I think absolutely. I mean, who wants to go to the ballot box and say, I'm voting against loans to small business. I'm voting against higher unemployment benefits. So you have both parties. There doesn't seem to be any anyone advocating much in the way of fiscal discipline right now, right? And I think um, part of that is it's definitely it's election season. So how could you? you how, view, could, how could you though? I mean, above and beyond it being an election year, right? Yes, I, I agree. I agree. But there are some some folks who are very focused on deficit. You know, bringing down the deficit, reducing deficits, either through reduced spending or increased taxes. And right now, people are saying just what you're saying, Carol. Like, you know what? Let's just take care of people. Hmm. Let's pass the bill and let's take care of people. And that's what's happening. And so I think um, I'm grateful that it's happening, but, I've, but I'm also wondering if it would have been as generous if it wasn't an election year. Uh, so I, I well, think that's that, just sad. You know, sorry. Oh, I'm sorry. Yeah. Okay, that's my opinion, everyone. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I, I, it's, you know, the, the good thing is we got it, right? We've gotten this aid, and we'll probably get more aid. It's our expectation that there'll be another program probably late, later this month with additional aid, um, which we need, and I'm happy that we're getting it. And so, you know, you mentioned 9-11, Kevin, and obviously something that folks looked at after that for obvious reasons was sure. the travel industry, the the airline industry. What do you see in this case? Because, you know, we're looking at, you know, volumes that are down 90 plus percent. Is there short term hope for that? Or is this something that's a longer term play? How do you look at that sector? Sure. So, you know, I was in Manhattan in 9-11, and, you know, I remember a lot of, you know, that too well. Uh, there were a lot of people who said, I'm never going to fly again, just not going to do it. And airline traffic uh, dropped precipitously over the next several months. But a year later, we were back to 90% of the airline traffic we had, we had before. Hmm. So it's interesting. The other thing that's interesting to me, and I actually had to read it, it was on Bloomberg, and I had to read it like five times, was, um, the carnival, some of the carnival crew, somewhat a major sort of travel agency, saying that when they just carnival announced that they were going to start sailing again, um, bookings were up, I think, 600% over the yeah. same period last year. Yeah. And I thought to myself, I would have, th- I would have thought that would be the last, very last thing to come back, the very last thing to come back. Yeah. And yet there are people who want to continue to sort of go back to, to quote normal. It is. Yeah. It's an amazing world. All right, Kevin Barry, uh, good to check in with you. Thanks so much for uh, giving us the opinion and the insights down in Raleigh, North Carolina, Chief Investment Officer for CapTrust, Carol. Resiliency, right? 
yeah. comes back. It's interesting. Thanks so much for listening to Bloomberg Business Week. Download the podcast on iTunes, SoundCloud, Bloomberg.com, or wherever you get your podcasts. And of course, you can always listen to our radio show at 2 p.m. Eastern on Bloomberg Radio or watch us on YouTube by searching Bloomberg Global News. 